0: Let's look to the Word of God, and we are going to do some reading. Now, you might have noticed, if you have your Bible open to Genesis 41, this is one of the longer chapters. A little bit too long, I think, for us to read the whole thing, because my concern here is that you just sort of get lost in the reading, and then as we get toward the latter part of it... you know, you maybe have zoned out on a few details that would be good. So we're going to read selectively here from this. We're just going to skip a few verses, but not read down for the whole thing um, at the beginning. So let's begin with verse number one. First of all, we're going to read down to verse 16. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. By the way, this is an Egyptian detail that's exactly true to the fact because what these cattle would do is so hot that they would go down to escape the heat and the flies and be nearly submerged in the Nile River and then when it was time to feed would come up into this to, to feed. So this is a, this is a touch that uh, is a, it's a really, it's really fascinating to see how accurate and the word of God is. So in his dream, he, he, it's very real realistic what he's dreaming. Then it says in verse 3, And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Well, you've got to at least say this much for him. At least he fell asleep again. And then it says, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh. I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called to Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Notice that word pit again, same word. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, Now notice what Pharaoh says to him. This is crucial. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So we'll end our reading there. Drop down to verse number 21. What we're skipping is the verses where Pharaoh retells his dream. There is one minor detail that Pharaoh gives that we don't have in the first telling of it. So I want to pick that up in verse 21. It says, But when they had eaten them, so these are the cows, the the seven lean ones and ugly ones come up and devour the good ones. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. So there's a little detail that he furnishes in the telling of the dream. Notice verse 24, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And here's a repeat, but it's important. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Same thing. Now we're going to read from verse 25 forward to verse 45. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven ears. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them that are they are seven years, and the and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty Will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt, Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall, be under the, shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, so Joseph went over the land of Egypt." Okay, let's stop here for now and pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for all the things that we look forward to in it, the, the prospect of fellowship and worship, the prospect of food and fellowship together, further worship. We just uh, are inundated, really, with your goodness and your blessings. We're, We're so grateful for these things. Thank you that we have a church to come to and a place to come that's uh, comfortable and commodious and uh, friends, brothers, and sisters, and most importantly, a sense of your presence. We crave that. We want to know that you're here, not just because you tell us so, but because we can sense you're working as we worship together today. Bless every Sunday school class that meets now. Bless these ABF classes. Help those, Lord, that are over on the other side that uh, any... uh, discombobulation with moving around some and the, the dividers, any confusion over that or sound bleeding through those dividers, just minimize that and allow every teacher to have success and liberty and freedom uh, and uh, the moving of your spirit in the teaching of your word today as well as the other classes. And help us, Lord. There's so much to talk about here. Just uh, bless our hearts. There's so much, Lord, that, that you can squeeze our hearts and talk to us about. And, I pray that you'll have your will and way. You know what each person needs today. So we commit this to you now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I read this chapter, and I think probably all of us experience what you might call a collective sigh of relief. Why do I say that? Well, because, boy, I mean, we've only been over three chapters, but boom, 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 it just keeps piling up, doesn't it? I mean, chapter 37, you have this horrendous, situation where Joseph is ultimately ends up sold into bondage, betrayed by his family, all of the things that befall him there. You get to chapter 39 and you have that roller coaster where he gets there and he, he finds some relief, as it were, in the, in the service of the captain of the guard, Potiphar, only to be lied about and slandered by Potiphar's wife. And then to find himself in the pit, in, to, to find himself under or in a place where the kind of like the the maximum security type situation there, and and then to find himself under the the tutelage, so to speak, oversight of the keeper who recognizes this ability that Joseph has, who puts him in charge, and then to have the the butler and the baker, the cupbearer and the baker come, and they have dreams. And Joseph, I think, has a little spark of hope kindled, but... The chapter ends with that ominous note in verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So it's just like one thing after the next. And does that ever feel like life to you? (laughs) You go through these periods where it just seems like one thing after the next. And by the way, let's look at the detail of, of verse 41. It says, after two whole years. I want you to just think about that for a minute because... It depends on your way of looking at time and perhaps even the context you're in. Remember that Jacob, Joseph's father, he served Laban for seven years for uh, Rachel. And what does the Bible say? It just seemed like a few few days to him for the love he had for her. That's a totally different perspective on time. Joseph's in the pit. Two years, let's put it this way, that's 730 days. It sounds different, doesn't it, than saying two years. Two years, ah, well, you know, it's two years and there's elections, and it, well, there's, elections start the day after the last one. But you know what I'm saying, I mean, we get used to these things, and two years, you think to yourself, oh, well, that's not too bad. I mean, there are, there are people whose minds actually look at it this way, I guess, in some cases, when they're offered plea deals or whatever, I could do two years. 720 days. I just want you to think about that. 720 days in prison more. So when we get to this chapter, and finally the scene changes from the humiliation, the utter humiliation that Joseph has to, had to endure, putting now the, thir- the two years with the rest of it, 13 years. He's 28, remember, when chapter 40 ends. Chapter 41 begins and says, This next development for Joseph doesn't occur for two more years. He's 30. And that detail comes out later in this chapter. And so all of a sudden, did you ever sort of appreciate the fact that things that happen in the life of Joseph just seem to happen with warp speed? I mean, in one day in chapter 37, think about this for a moment. In one day, he goes up there to where his brothers are with a a coat of many colors. He's his father's fair-haired boy. And in one day, he's on his way to Egypt. One day. In one day, he's in the prison, going about whatever normal routine he's going about, when some guy comes and he hears a rattle of a key in the door and he says, get your stuff, we're headed out. Huh. Where? Pharaoh wants to see you. Huh? Pharaoh wants to see me. And in a moment of, in a matter of just the space it takes for the interview that we read about in chapter 41, he immediately goes at warp speed from being a prisoner to a prince. So, let's not so much concentrate on the collective sigh of relief because... I would like to talk about that. I mean, it's a worthy subject. You can have a whole lesson that you develop thinking about that, how humiliation comes first, exaltation follows, and that's a pattern in the life of Christ, as I pointed out last week, but it's also a pattern in our experience. Trials here, when joy comes in the morning, the psalmist tells us, they endure for a night, and you may have weeping, but joy comes in the morning, and some trials just go on and on, and some resolutions don't come really, I think, until we're with the Lord, but we do know that that's what's coming. The crown comes after the cross. So we could spend the whole lesson talking about that. I want to take this a different direction this morning. I want you to think about the point that I have right there on the screen, that this sudden exaltation is every bit as much of a challenge and a test poses his own set of temptations to Joseph as anything we've seen already. So it's like you go from testing to testing to testing, except that the 13 long years of humiliation have prepared him. And this is what's crucial, I think, to see because God knows what he's doing. And you and I have problems. Sometimes we get distracted or something. We put something in the oven or, you know, you you, you adjust the toaster and you, you adjusted it too much. You get the thing out and it's burnt. Or you, you walk off and forget that, Uh, Yeah, I left that in there cooking. I meant to be back here in two minutes to check on it. Now it's different. God never, when God cooks, God never, he always gets the right temperature and the right length of time. God always does this, and he's never off. His timing is always perfect. He knows what he's trying to accomplish. So we have to conclude that whatever these tests are going to be in this new position, God deems Joseph ready for it. And the, the reason that God put him through such a ringer leading up to this is because what he's going to face next is huge. In fact, it's perhaps more huge than anything he has struggled with so far. It's just different, which is how life is, isn't it? You go from one season to the next, and you think, you know, I know there was a man in our ministry in Pennsylvania that used to say this, and I think he felt it more strongly than I did, but I understood what he was saying that, you know, he said, I used to I used to have the idea that I'd I'd get to the place where I wouldn't have these problems anymore, wouldn't have these trials, wouldn't have these temptations. I'd I'd kind of grow out of all those things. you know what? Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And it's like oil and water. They don't mix. So as long as you still have the flesh, you know, you're going to have this. That's what this earthly scene is like. I want to propose three potential temptations. And I think that the clue to seeing how he responds to this and why we can still make the case, after everything that's gone before, he still has pristine character. He still has an unblemished record. Character. Hopefully, we have time for you to see that word again at the end of the lesson. And it's his responses. It's the things that he says as he interacts with circumstances that reveal where he is in his heart. And you know that's biblical. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And there's the Luke version of it there. We won't take time for the the entire verse. I think you know that concept. But words reveal what's going on in our hearts. So that's the key to seeing why Joseph and how he responds to these things, how he prevails. First temptation, the temptation to self-advancement. Think about this. So what's the scene? What's the backdrop of all this? Well, Pharaoh's had a dream. And dreams are not, um, Joseph is kind of not totally a novice with this subject at all, because for whatever reason, dreams have been a part of his experience from the beginning, as it were. But the real backdrop of this is, is that there's no one who can help Pharaoh out with this. We pointed out in the previous lesson, I think I brought this out when the cupbearer and the baker were all upset because no one could interpret their dreams. And in that culture, these dreams were so significant. I mean, we don't quite attach that significance to it today. But I will say this, it's kind of a, it's kind of a spectacular failure, I think, on the part of these magicians and these wise men. There's two classes of people uh, involved in this. So back to 41.8, Pharaoh told them his dreams who did he tell? All the magicians of Egypt. This is verse 8. And all its wise men. Later it just mentions the the magicians but it's, it's all of these people. He does what's normal. He's just a pagan king. He doesn't know any better. He, he goes to the people that are supposed to be able to help. And I think about this and maybe I'm putting too much weight on them. I can think of some reasons though maybe why they were hesitant. But you know it would seem to me when you think about this dream you have two series of good followed by bad, and the number seven is used. In each case, so you have the seven cattle and then the seven ugly ones, they eat them all up and then you have it repeated only with the ears. You'd think these guys could come up with a little something. they say, well, it sounds to us like there's there's a a momentous event coming. There's going to be good, but it's going to be followed by bad. They don't offer anything. It just says they couldn't interpret the dreams. Now, I don't know, maybe... uh, Maybe you look at it this way, maybe you look at it, they didn't want to stick their necks out. They didn't have all the answers, and they didn't want their heads lopped off. After all, that did happen to the chief baker. So who knows, we don't really, we're not really given that information, but however you want to look at it, it is a spectacular failure. The very people that he would depend on, all the PhDs, however you want to look at that in American circles today with the intelligentsia and the people that are in the top echelons, of, who should be able to answer your questions. I suppose, you know, it would be like the president calls his entire cabinet in, he calls in his national security advisor, he has his chief of staff, and nobody can provide an answer for him, nobody has any ideas or recommendations how to deal with a problem. It's just utter failure. It's against that backdrop that Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, I've heard, and he's talking about, of course, what the, the chief, the cupbearer, has told him. I've heard you can interpret dreams. Think about that for a minute. If you were Joseph and you'd just spent 13 years of your life, and we know during that time some of what was on his mind because here's what he says in chapter 40, verse 14 to the cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and there have I done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Well, wouldn't it be sort of tempting just in that moment, would it really be that wrong to say something to Pharaoh like, I believe I can help you. I believe I can help you. And uh, if I help you, you know, I just, I want to mention, you know, could you, could you kind of, you know what? There's nothing like that that happens. His response to that statement on the part of Pharaoh. The way Pharaoh words that, I've heard, you can interpret a dream. I've heard when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph comes back with one word. The first word out of his mouth is a one-word answer, which he then develops. But it's really interesting to look at this one-word answer because, and it was the same way when Mrs. Potiphar propositioned him and. The Bible just turns around just as swiftly as she made her proposition, the Bible says, but Joseph refused. It's just like, she made her proposition and Joseph said, no. There's no bartering, there's no negotiating, there's no, well, let's discuss this, let's sit down and have coffee, none of that business, he, 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 he's not discourteous with Pharaoh. But Joseph is just possessed of this ability. He has keen insight. He knows exactly what he needs to say. He knows exactly the right thing to say. But what he says reveals his character. And he's simply not going to place himself in a position to put himself forward. When doing it that way would have, had he acknowledged what Pharaoh said in the way that Pharaoh said it, it would have put the emphasis on him and not God. And Joseph just isn't going to tolerate that. That's not how he conceives of this ability to to understand dreams. He gives this one-word answer, which in Hebrew is literally, not to me, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us in English. We might use an English expression like, not at all. So here's what Pharaoh says. I've heard that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph says, not at all. Think about that, folks. Think about what that reflects, and then he develops it with what follows. So notice um, the verse 16, Joseph answered, not at all. The very next word out of his mouth is what? God. Not me, God. God will provide Pharaoh an answer of peace. That's what it is literally in the Hebrew, uses the word shalom, and It's rendered here in the ESV a favorable answer. God will provide Pharaoh a shalom-type answer, an answer of peace, a favorable answer. Later in the interpretation, it's the same way. The very first thing out of his mouth, look at verse 25. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, God. It's always about God with Joseph, never about me. Isn't that refreshing? How many people do you know like that? I mean, when you look at the news, when you look at politicians, how many people do you know like this? Uh, forgive me, I don't mean to politicize. It, you know, our former president had people won't say his name anymore. It's not politically correct. Okay, it's Trump. Sorry, but he had a little issue with this, you know. I mean, even most ardent supporters, I think, would acknowledge that. He, <laughs> you know, it's it's about me. Joseph is not that way, it's refreshing, it's about God. Everything is about God. So Joseph is not going to seek to put Pharaoh in his debt at the expense of God's glory. Verse 33, we've already noticed verse eight a couple of times, look at verse 33. It says here, now let Pharaoh select a man. So now he's moving off of what he says. By the way, he says something that's kind of crucial in the thing. Because he says that this is going to shortly come to pass. And so in verse 38, he follows up, he starts to give, um, 33, I'm sorry. He starts to give, now let Pharaoh, see in the verse before that, look how it ends. God will shortly bring it about. In other words, he's saying there's some urgency to this Pharaoh. This thing I'm telling you is not 10 years from now. It's imminent. And so Pharaoh's got to do something, so Joseph has a recommendation but you got to realize when Joseph makes this recommendation he has no idea what's going to happen next he's not putting himself forward he's just telling Pharaoh you better get some smart cookie in here to deal with this (laughs) well it turns out that Joseph is the smart cookie and Pharaoh realizes this by the way if you want to know just how effective this is with Pharaoh if you want to know just how God blesses this kind of a person This kind of a person that's always about, he must increase, but I must decrease. This kind of a person that wants to see God get the glory for everything that is accomplished in our life. Pharaoh gets the message because look at what he says. It's all about the responses. You can tell what's going on in the responses. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a smart cookie like this anywhere? No. No. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now you can argue all day long that it's literally the spirit of the gods and that Pharaoh was a pagan and he didn't understand about the Holy Spirit. So much is true. But that doesn't mean that the, the whole, that's, that's really beside the point. The point is, see they said the same thing about Daniel. When Belshazzar was, Belt, uh, was talking about him, he said in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. They, these guys didn't understand Christian theology. What they understood was, against the backdrop of all the magicians and wise men who are supposed to have that information, they don't have it, but this guy does, and there's something that's giving it to him up here, not down here. It doesn't take a thing away from the point that's being made. And in the next statement, Pharaoh says it again. He says, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You see, Pharaoh, it makes an impression on him. He's used to these guys coming in here and angling. Do you think that happens in today's society? All the time, right? It's kind of the way of the world. People kind of play off their advantages for advancement. Not Joseph. We gotta keep moving. Next temptation is to cave to the culture. So, what happens? Now we need to read verses 46 to 57. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, look at this, until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year, of famine came, the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has... This is Joseph's responses. Watch this. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all the hardship of my father's all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine, notice this, in all lands. That's very unusual. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished and people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth, all the land. So, what's going on now? The temptation to cave to the culture. Well, did you ever read this and kind of think to yourself, boy, Pharaoh, I mean, he kind of, did he think this through? I mean, he's never even met this guy before. He he brings him in. Here's what he has to say. He says, Okay, you're prime minister. I don't think so. I think it's really just the opposite of this. I think that Pharaoh knows exactly and has made a a very wise decision. What does the Bible say? The proposal pleased Pharaoh, and what's the next phrase, verse 37? And all his servants. So this is not just a one-person deal here because the chief cupbearer is there too. We find that out rather shortly. But he's got his ministers there, he's got everybody that, that knows something. It's like the president, he's got his whole cabinet there and all these people and this guy comes in. Every single one of them is in agreement with what's going on here. Every single one of them. And since the backdrop of all of this is all the big shots, all the wise men and all the magicians, these guys are supposed to know all this stuff and figure all this out. They can't interpret the dreams and they can't give any advice. And Joseph is sitting there, and Pharaoh says, we can't find any. We don't have anybody like you. All right, you get the point. And plus, Joseph, as I pointed out earlier, he said, this is imminent. So what would you do? You need somebody to manage this, and the guy's already laid the plan out. It's it's, it's like, by the way, Joseph didn't have a chance to rehearse this. Did you think about that? I mean, this borders a little bit on what Jesus said. I didn't give you the verse. But when Jesus told the disciples, when you are in these situations, settle it in your heart beforehand not to worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit of God will give it to you. That's just how, excuse the expression, that's just how tight Joseph is with God. I mean, when this happens, he's had, he has no way to perceive that he's going to see Pharaoh. He has no way to know what Pharaoh is going to say to him. It's all right on the spot. And he is in such close contact with God that he not only knows how to interpret the dream, which is essentially given to him as he hears it, but he knows what to recommend. This is the Spirit of God. And I can tell you, I wish I had time. We're hurting for time this morning, but I I wish I had time to tell you times I've been in situations I had no clue what to say. A lot of them. And I, I did learn one thing over the years, when you're in that situation, just wait and don't say anything. Because you'll mess it up. But if you wait long enough, they'll either say something or God will speak to you. And I, I couldn't tell you the number of times God got me off of hot seats because I just didn't have that kind of wisdom to deal with things that people brought to me. But Joseph or Pharaoh has a little bit of a problem. He wants to put this guy in as prime minister, but he's not even an Egyptian, verse 12. That's exactly what the cupbearer says to him. A young Hebrew was there with us. Joseph is Jewish, Joseph is not Egyptian. How are you gonna put a guy in? Okay, in America, you can't can't be president unless you're born here, right? Remember, that was a big to-do back a couple presidents ago. You can't. And, and people that think that it would be really cool if Elon Musk could be president, he has that problem. So this is the problem that Pharaoh has to grapple with. Now, Pharaoh's no dumb, you're gonna find out Pharaoh's not a, not a, it's not like Pharaoh's not a sharp cookie himself. He knows exactly how to handle this problem. First thing he does is give him an Egyptian name. Boy, that's a mouthful. Have a look at that thing, would you? I mean, would you want to be called Zaphanath-Paneah? I mean, it, you got to practice that. But it's an Egyptian name. Then he gives him a wife. Now look at the description that's given to us here of of the the lady who's going to become Mrs. Joseph. It says, "Find my verse here." I'm talking along here and lost where my verses are. 45. Yeah, that's what it says, and I thought that was not right. Pharaoh called the name of Joseph Zaphnath Paneah, thank you, and he gave him now Asenath. So, what about, what are her credentials? Did he just, you know, is this just sort of random? Not at all. She's the daughter of Potipharah. All right, this is not Potiphar. This guy just happens to be the head of the most exalted priestly caste in all of Egypt. How do we know this? We know it from Egyptologists, but we also know it because, look at the end of his name. What's the last two letters? R-A. you know anything about Egypt's gods? Ra was the sun god, and in Egyptian culture, Ra was deemed to be the head cheese, the creator of all the others and of all the other gods. That's who this guy is, and he gives to Joseph, that man's daughter. I mean, he's starting to look like he's got some credentials as an Egyptian now. In fact, the whole point of all of this is that when it ends, Joseph is going to be a completely naturalized Egyptian. And right, I just want you to think about that for a moment. We don't have time to turn to it. I actually have the verses here. Zaphnath paneah the meaning of that is debated. We don't have time. Asenath, I already explained to you what that means. She has a name, too, that's, that reflects this background, because it's belonging to the godless Neith, is what her name, and then her father. I explained to you that. But he's completely, and I give you this, this Daniel. I want you to think about this for a minute. I, we don't have time for these verses, but when Nebuchadnezzar did this, there's a lot of parallels between Moses serving in Pharaoh's court for, for the first 40 years of his life. Was Moses corrupted by the culture? No. There came a day when Moses walked out there and said, you know, I'm a Hebrew. And I see this guy mistreating a Hebrew, and I can't, I can't tolerate that, because when he had, the, the writer of the Hebrews tells us this, he chose not the treasures of Egypt, not the rewards of Egypt. He was not corrupted by that culture. Can you imagine what it would be, right, be, be, be like to serve in that culture? Just like Daniel and his three friends they were in that culture, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's whole program was change their names. You know they changed their names, right? Daniel was named Belteshazzar, and those names reflect Babylonian gods. The whole point was completely convert these guys, reprogram them. They're no longer Hebrews. You're going to get a Babylonian name that reflects Babylonian religion, and you're going to get have to learn the language of the Babylonians and then after so much time, when you've mastered all this, then we'll bring you in before Nebuchadnezzar. It's brainwashing. It's culture change. It's reprogramming. That's what they did. They were smart that way. Okay. Well, I don't know if Pharaoh is totally trying to reprogram him so much as he's just trying to make him acceptable to his people, but that's, that's the kind of thing that goes on. Now, think of yourself at 30 years old being brought into that kind of power in that culture. But look what he names his boys. And we don't have a word. The the record is silent. There's not a word that his wife has any protest about this. He gives these boys Hebrew names. Manasseh is a Hebrew name. Ephraim is a Hebrew name. It even has a Hebrew dual ending. For those of you that know the language, it means doubly fruitful. I mean, and when you hear him say what these names mean to him, verse 51, the name of the firstborn, Manasseh For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship at all my father's house. He doesn't mean that he doesn't think about those things anymore. He means the significance of this in his life is at this juncture in his life, it's no big deal to him anymore. God has brought him so far and proven himself so good and so faithful, that he can look back on all of those injustices that were done to him in his life and it didn't bother him anymore. Hebrew names. You know, the Borg want to assimilate you. Any Trekkies in here? I see a few of you laughing. Nobody will admit it. The Borg want to assimilate you. The culture wants to assimilate you. Joseph says, I'm here to serve. I'm here to do what you've called me to do. I will do that and do it with all the energy that I have, but I will not be assimilated. Now, we're out of time here. Not, we have two minutes, but <laughs> you know, this is, this is the point I really like to spend 15 minutes on. The temptation to rush ahead of God. Here's the whole thing. Did you ever think about this? In these closing verses of the chapter, He's in this position, but he never makes any effort to contact his family or to visit Canaan. Did you ever think about that? That's huge. I mean, it's not like he didn't have the resources. He could have at any time. By the way, uh, Lance mentioned to me a week or so ago, you know, wonder what Mrs. Potiphar was thinking these days. Well... And you can use that same line of logic and think about, wonder what those guys over there in Canaan would have been thinking if Joseph had showed up in the front yard with about ten chariots and a bunch of Egyptian troops and said, Oh, hi. You had my robe of many colors and tore it up. I have a new robe now. You can read about it right in this chapter. Joseph and his garments are interesting. I said that to you once before. He doesn't do any of that. Why doesn't he do that? Would it have been wrong to kind of just jumpstart the thing a little bit? Would it have been wrong to kind of just kind of send over? Maybe he, could have sent, maybe he could have sent somebody indirectly. Maybe he could have sent, you know, an emissary just to say, I'm from Joseph, get the ball, prime the pump, get the ball rolling here on, on, on taking the next step and getting all this resolved. No, especially when the years of famine came. But I think as Joseph told those dreams, he could, he could almost intuit what God was going to do. God was going to use this famine to bring that situation to him. And the whole point is all the years. I mean, the closest Joseph ever gets to revealing his heart is that verse 14 in chapter 40, when he says, remember me, tells the chief cupbearer, please remember me. I got sold over here out of the land of the Hebrews. But now he names his boy and he says, you know, God has brought me to the place that, you know, he's in control. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And he's content to sit there and wait. God's time, at Psalm 105, verse 19, the King James renders it using the word time. I like that. Verse 19, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Folks, it takes a lot to wait on God. And I I made the point to you, if Sarah and Abraham had followed that, we'd have a different world today. (laughs) <laughs> but Sarah thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to prime the pump. I've been 10 years, no child. Now I'll just give you Hagar. we got to quit. Whether in prison misery or court glory, Joseph is the same. And here's a little quotation for you. Character. I told you you'd see it again at the end of the lesson. Character is undoubtedly the secret of power, but God is the secret of character. Father, we thank you for this day. Bless the things that follow in Jesus' name. Amen.